0: I'm Katie Quinn, your host of the Keep It Quirky podcast. As you know, if you've been listening to the pod, this is a show that's all about creativity and entrepreneurship and just feeling good about what you are waking up and doing every day. Since I create food and travel content for my YouTube channel and various platforms, there tends to be a solid amount of food-related business people and creators on the podcast as interviewees. Today's episode is a little different than the norm as it's a panel that I moderated in Dublin, Ireland a few weeks ago ago at the Smart Kitchen Summit Europe. So the Smart Kitchen Summit is an annual conference that's held on the West Coast in the States since 2015 and this was the first year that it was brought to Europe. I was super stoked to be asked to participate as a moderator for the panel discussion about how the recipe is evolving as our kitchens change with the tech times. I mean, if you think about like waffle irons, it was like one of the first technologies and the difference that made in the kitchen way back then and then think about the difference that microwaves made it's really just been a big snowball since then. Before I dive right in and play the audio from that panel discussion, let me introduce you to Mike Wolf. He's the one running the whole shebang. I caught up with him in Dublin at the event, which was very awesomely held at the Guinness
1: Storehouse.
0: Mike Wolf of the Spoon of Smart Kitchen Summit. Congratulations, this is a killer event.
1: Yeah, what better place to do an event than at the Guinness like storehouse?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yesterday with the welcoming reception in the Gravity Bar with just Guinness yeah. being passed around. I saw,
1: I saw you at the Pine of Guinness.
0: <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> so for anyone who has no idea about even what a smart kitchen is, what is the Smart Kitchen Summit and why have a conference all about it?
1: So we created the event in 2015 because I saw a uh, need to bring the industry together to talk, have a conversation about what was happening in the kitchen where we're seeing changing behavior around how millennials are buying and sourcing and bringing food into the home, uh, new technology whether that's voice assistance or new heating technologies, um, and and you know connectivity, sure Wi-Fi and those types of technologies. But as as we've had the event over the course of the last three years, it's become a bigger conversation because what I've realized is not only are we seeing new devices go into the kitchen, but we're seeing upstream uh, the way people buy food at retail is changing. Uh, beyond that, we're seeing the way food is made and manufactured, and new enabling technologies like artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, and those types of technologies really impacting the way food is being made, manufactured, and brought to the consumer.
0: So that's the gist of all the panels and presentations there. There were a ton of really inspiring entrepreneurs from food tech startups from all over Europe, and it was so cool to have a chance to chat with them a bit. And it was a particular pleasure to talk on stage with Lulu Grimes of BBC Good Food, Kishan Vassani of Dish Q, and John Jenkins of Heston Q. They all come from different facets of the food industry, which made for a really compelling conversation with different viewpoints and there was some disagreements. It was all respectful and basically just made for a really educational and entertaining panel. They represented everything from the editorial recipe content creation side of things to a personal flavor technology that utilizes artificial intelligence and a technology in your kitchen with you that aims to make your cooking journey an easier, more enjoyable one. So now let me present the live recording of the panel I moderated, titled, Personalized, Shoppable, and Guided, Recipes Are Not Dead. Hello everyone, so uh, my name is Katie Quinn and we are going to be re-envisioning what the recipe is. They are certainly not dead, but they are going through fundamental changes as technology is being brought more and more into the kitchen and in new and different ways. So I am a video content creator, I'm a YouTuber, uh, I'm also a cookbook author, so I have my toe in all of these different aspects and I'm so excited to be talking to everyone up on the stage because we all come from very different places. So let's go down the line a little bit and if you could say who you are, what you do, um, let's start there. John, you want to take it away?
2: Uh, Sure. So my name is uh, John Jenkins. Everyone calls me JJ. So if you see me out there, just call me JJ. Um, I'm mostly a technology guy. So I spent most of my career working at places like IBM. I was at Amazon for about 10 years. I worked at Pinterest for several years down in the Bay Area and then started working on cooking technology as part of Heston Smart Cooking. And what we build is we build uh, a guided cooking system that consists of temperature sensing cookware, a smart heat source, and then apps that contain sort of next generation recipes that set the temperatures and times for you automatically and guide you through the process. Hi, everyone.
3: Uh, My name's Kishan. I'm uh, founder and CEO of Dishq, or Dishq. We're based in Bangalore, and our core uh, technology is essentially taste prediction, and we use food science and machine learning to power that technology. We have a number of different applications of the technology, including a personalized recommendation engine. Before uh, this venture, I used to work at Just Eat.
4: Hi, I'm Lulu. I... um I've been writing recipes for 25 years now, so that's, that's really what I do as part of my job, whether they're for print, um, for the website, for hack videos, for any kind of platform imaginable. And I work on what's called our content hub at Good Food, and we basically create content for all the different platforms that, as a media company, we publish.
0: So I love this because we have such a range of people here and so, you know, when you realize that your grandma, your Italian grandma, it brings out her iPad to search for a recipe, you know that recipes are changing. So let's dig into how. So we've got a B2C company, business to consumer, B2B, and a content creator up here. Start thinking of questions you want to ask because I'm already excited to throw this little guy around. Um, So let's start with fundamentally recipes solve two issues or answer two questions, and that is what is it? What should I cook? And then the second thing is, is it any good? Because a lot of search engines might not bring up the best recipes. So how does tech, how is technology solving those two problems?
2: Yeah, I don't know, I'll start. I, I think it's interesting <laughs> to, to consider like, what is the purpose of a recipe? Right, like a recipe, like I don't know. When you look at directions to get to some place, right, like you're, it's like a set of streets you should go to, and you end up at a known point. Like a recipe is kind of the same thing. Like it is a set of instructions that should enable you to create the thing that someone else created. Like they're effectively trying to teach you through instructions. And so, like the successfulness of any given recipe format or system or or whatever should hinge on how well it actually lets you do that. And that's what our goal is. Like our goal is like ideally the thing comes out the way the creator of the recipe intended it to. Uh, and so I don't know. That's what I think the future of recipes will be. I think that's what we've been sort of on this long journey striving to get to, to some degree, right? Like, recipes have gotten better and better. We move from cookbooks to things that have lots of pictures now, so you can see intermediate steps on big blog posts that go on for pages and pages. But I think that's sort of the evolution that's going on right now, more precision.
4: I fundamentally disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You can look at recipes like that. You can look at them as a set of instructions, a bit like building an Ikea bookshelf or something. But actually, where you serve your recipe up changes the nature of what a recipe is so if you go back you know 100 years and you find an old cookbook someone might have written in the margin they've changed the recipe to the way they want to do it maybe they've left notes for someone else you dial forward to if you go on to any you know one of the best recipes on the good food website the ones that are used all the time there are pages and pages of comments underneath and they're not because the recipe doesn't work they're because people are having conversations with each other about how to make that recipe better or maybe they don't like the red peppers They'd rather put, you know, butternut squash in something. So one of my sort of concerns, in a way, about what's happening to recipes via technology, and actually, you know, we have to do a lot of work with rewriting recipes for different platforms, is... Is that loss of actual interaction with the user. So I, I'm, I've been heartened to talk talking to various people here about the fact that they, people will be able to personalize their recipes um, through various bits of tech. I know yours does that. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that a recipe isn't just a set of instructions. It can be lots of different things to lots of different people. And we should not lose sight of that. Because for some people, it's just a jumping off point. For something really exciting and frankly, half the time they end up with the recipe, which is nothing like the one that started it's then their recipe it's not our recipe anymore
0: i think that this brings up a really good point which is or question rather which is what is it to personalize a meal Kishan, do you want to take it as that is what dish q is all sure, about
3: sure um so you know i think these are really inter- both interesting perspectives and i think just uh, adding on to the, what was just said is that um like if you just take one of the most common dishes out there, um, chicken tikka masala, right? There's a million ways you can cook that, and and in, and personalization is about. Understanding what are the propensities for certain people's and affinities for people's different ingredients in that recipe and bringing out those cooking styles that they're familiar with. You know, chef skill has a really important role to play in understanding that. So it's about a deep understanding of who's cooking and, and the situational context in which they're cooking and then unearthing the version of the recipe that is, whether it's community built or coming out of a cookbook. I think that is the most important thing. It's that matching of understanding people and understanding what they want to achieve with the recipe itself. So, yeah,
2: I mean, I think like the f- maybe the fundamental difference about what we're talking about, and this is really an interesting topic to, c- to consider. I think is, was the recipe created to convey something that the recipe creator wanted to convey, or is it merely a sketch designed for an end user to improvise upon? Like, and I don't know that there's necessarily a right or wrong answer to that. Like, uh, I think we come from more the perspective of someone really wanted to help you do something cool uh, and and allow you to make something in, in... Not that it's wrong for you to improvise, but that the success of the recipe in and of itself would be its ability to achieve that end. If you want to go off track and do different things, like awesome, like more power to you. But like, if it turns out bad, like that's not the recipe fault. The recipe writer's fault. That's on you now, right?
4: I think people, quite a lot of people, assume that uh, if a recipe goes wrong, it, it's them. Um, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. I mean, people play around with the recipes in the most extraordinary ways, but. I suppose also there are, you know, there are different users and there are a lot of people who just want to be able to put dinner on the table and they want it to look how they want to look and we have come through a culture in which there are many, many glossy photographs whether it be in recipe books or on Instagram and actually replicating what you're being shown isn't necess- it's not necessarily easy particularly if someone's fiddled around with the pictures a bit and I think Instagram's got a lot to... Um, to answer for and sometimes I look at a picture of food and it just looks amazing and I look more closely and I think you know what that's a disgusting idea <laughs> it looks great oh god someone put cereal in an empty avocado shell yesterday I was just like why?
3: <laughs> I, think, I think the interesting thing there is like if you just take a, 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 another context so we're talking about obviously mostly the home cooking scenario but if you take, take that into the restaurant for a second and just think about how you behave in a restaurant and if you try a dish and it, doesn't, it isn't to your liking do you blame the chef? Most often you do, right? And do you, so, therefore, are you blaming their ability, their skill, the recipe, the ingredients? What are you doing? But when it comes to our home scenario, we don't go through that same process. I mean, in my first example, if my wife cooks like keto cupcakes or something, you know, I know she's gone, it's something out of her comfort zone or something like that. Whereas if it's her day to day thing and it didn't quite go as it does normally, there's a taste consistency issue. So, I think it's really about understanding that context again, going back to that. But I think we we're in different modes in terms of how we assess uh, taste and flavor when we're you know, digesting in which scenario, depending on which scenario we're in.
0: I want to talk about the relationship between personalization and convenience. Um, and w- what you think, like, can, is it more convenient to have a personalized recipe?
2: Uh, it's an interesting question so I spent part of my career at Amazon working on personalizing the homepage so you'll buy lots of stuff so um, uh, I don't think they're fundamentally at odds I don't I don't think like if you were to create a continuum personalization is on one end and convenience is on the other right like I, I don't think those are necessarily opposed um, and so I, I think there's a, a an, a valid area for personalization and go read the comments on allrecipes.com, right? And people are like, this is too spicy, this is not spicy enough. This is too salty. I wish this had more butter. I wish I had less butter, right? Like so clearly people want to want to personalize. Um, And so I guess I just don't believe they're fundamentally in in opposition, I guess. Yeah. I think think, um, it's similar kind of
3: feelings about that. I think personalization comes, it's just, we all talk about it now as something that's being important, but actually it's been happening all the time and users just doing it on their own essentially. And we're just trying to latch onto that and make it more convenient for them as a result. Um, Personalization is an enabler towards convenience, I feel, as opposed to something against it. But again, because of the complexities of everybody's taste preferences, I think unearthing the right thing for the right person at the right point in time is where technology can really help i think that's the key um, we haven't got there yet but because of the various factors be it biological uh, ethnicity psychological there are so many factors that go into making up and understanding someone's flavor and taste um, and presenting them with the right thing but um you know ultimately the end game is convenient but with personalization at the center of it
4: I think the other thing is also that what your type of technologies can do is actually break people out of the box they're stuck in. You know, a lot of people cook the same thing over and over again because they're comfortable with it. So actually, if you buy an appliance which offers you an easy way to try something new, that's a great thing. We ran a a thing called Take It to 10 because people actually, you know, they have eight to 10 recipes max, go round and round and round. So actually, one of the things I do think that the new technologies can do is educate and teach. And I think actually, you know, you can't necessarily afford or have the time to go to cooking class. But actually, if your appliance can teach something, you use something new, you might not use that appliance all the time. You might cook in lots of different ways. But I think in terms of an educational tool, it's incredibly useful.
2: I mean, I think one thing that we've observed for sure is that cooking's expensive. Like, and there's a lot on the line, right? You're going to start making a meal at five o'clock and your family wants to eat at six and you spent. $45 on those ingredients. And if things go sideways, you've got two problems. You've got a bunch of hungry people that are angry, and you wasted 45 bucks, And now you got to go buy dinner on top of that. Um, and, and so it, we've looked at a bunch of our users have cooked more than 60 different recipes over the course of the last nine months. And like I think that that only happens if you give them a way that they can be successful time after time trying new things. And so that's really important to us is Success breeds variety, essentially, in this world, and it's a powerful force if you can harness that.
3: I think, I think discovery comes with risk. Of course, that's in its very nature, but that's the whole point of this technological side to it is can we remove the, the risk of discovery and let people be completely free and not have to worry about the downsides and the high stakes of cooking, essentially?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, food is... Pretty much the most personal, one of the most personal things that there that there is, um, and yet so often food recommendations are kind of impersonal. Um, so yeah, personalization seems to be such a such a easy place to to fit in. Um, what's going to happen to recipe writers in the future? How are how is their job going to have to change? Actually, it's one of the. There's a a
4: few words that have been banded around today, and it's it's quite interesting, and I think it's probably because of the American side of things, but everyone uses the word chef. We don't do that in the UK. We have chefs, obviously, they work in restaurants. Um, But good food, we cook. We are home cooks. Our test kitchen is full of home cooking appliances. It is not full of kitchen appliances that you find in restaurants. And I think there's a, there's a sort of difference, actually, if you, if you are serving up to the UK market. It's something to remember that if you use the word chef, it immediately makes people think it's difficult it's slightly more tricky and you need some skills. So it's one of the things that I would actually advise everyone to do is actually look at that wording because if you instead say cook, anyone can cook, a child can cook. So um, I think, depending where your recipe writer is coming from, um, in order to serve up recipes for different platforms, so what we do is we have the base recipe, which is written in, in quite a conversational style. So it's not shouted instruction because they just don't read very well in print. And quite often, our recipes go up in print first. Um, when you translate that recipe into something for the web, it's got a fit of format. It needs to be slightly more instructional looking. You might take some of the conversational words out. And then again, when it has to change, if it's, you know... <laughs> if it's a voice you know is going to read it again it's the difference between the Alexa model and the Google model do you want the more conversational style back or you know do you want the instructions I think recipe writers are basically going to have to be able to do all sorts of different things and again you know there was the Twitter recipe which had a sort of brief moment of very few words indeed Um, you know and now you know you can't you can't live link on um, Instagram so you can't put your recipe link in there so people have started writing the recipes underneath and it's it's the same with video content, you know, fewer people start watching were watching video and actually if you add recipe to that again the video watches go up. You know, you've got you've got to be incredibly versatile as a recipe writer now I think.
3: I think you have to embrace the community. I mean, that's, that's the key, right? That's the, you can't operate and just say, this is the recipe and this is how I'm going to do it and, and I'm just going to publish it. And of course, you know, when you do things like that anyway, it's going to get commented on and people are going to share their own stories and experiences based upon that. I think once you really embrace the community and try to uh, have that conversation with them and say to them, you know... I'm open to this and I'm open to hearing your thoughts and ideas and how this could be relevant for different people, then I think that's really interesting. But also, you know, most recipe platforms have, or any kind of recipe sites, they generally have a system whereby upvoting, rating, or reviews are given. And, and that leads to problems in itself. I think the way we, in, in, across all of our uh, choices in society are driven by ratings and reviews and recommendations. But of course, those are flawed in many ways because uh, ratings and reviews are never con- uh, contextualized. So if someone rates a recipe five stars, but it's got, <clears throat> excuse me, an ingredient that I really don't like the taste of and I didn't notice that or something like that, then that five stars has no meaning to me at all. Uh, and I'm gonna have a bad experience. So I think when you're embracing the community, I think it's really important that contextualization is, is really part of that journey as well. And that needs a platform shift as well.
2: I mean, I think we all need to take a long, hard look at ourselves here too. Like, uh, obviously you're here, you're at least somewhat interested in food, right? I'm less familiar with the international trends, Cooking in the U.S. is on decline. It is, it's just the reality. People are scared of cooking, they don't know how to cook, they don't know how to get good results. And so, like clearly to some extent, what we have today is failing them, right? Like, or, the, or they would be doing it and enjoying it more. Um, and so, I think the question is, is what's missing? Uh we do a lot of user testing on our recipes. Every time we create a recipe, we have a focus, a set of people that come in, they cook it on video. The chefs are forced to sit there and watch these people cook it on video. And honestly, if you want to see something fun, watching the chefs watch someone on video cook something is one of my favorite things. Like tearing their hair out, like, do you not know how to dice an onion? Right? Like, and it turns out people don't know how to dice an onion. Um, and so the question is, is like, how have we arrived at this situation where like people don't have the confidence they don't get the results, and they're choosing not to do it. Right? For us, that means like more prescriptive instructions, more video content, more, more images to show them how to do things, um, and a lot of testing and revising so that you're using the right words that actually mean something to a home cook. right? Instead of the common recipe or, or you know, like cookbook language, that mostly means nothing to your average home cook. Do you, do you think it's also like the fact that, of course, the macro trend
3: is that, you know, we've become a society of super convenience and, you know, uber laziness and binge-watching on Netflix and, you know, delivery, et cetera, et cetera, and, and ultimately that's kind of a driving force behind perhaps, you know, the ability and confidence and willingness to cook. And and, and then, then we develop these technologies that help people go through these journeys in a, in a more
2: convenient way, but then are we diluting cooking down a little bit beyond... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would say maybe, like... If you give me the following choice, you can eat something crappy that took you a long time to make and that you put a lot of effort into, or you can eat something crappy that was fast. right? Okay, well, I'll take crappy and fast, right? Like, that's, that seems like a good trade-off. Like, I think what I'd rather say is like, okay, it might take a little longer, but it's actually really gonna be good when it's done, or you can have something crappy and fast. Like, we, our company clearly comes down on that it's gonna take a little bit more time, but at the end, you're gonna have something that you're actually proud of that, you will feel good about eating. Uh, and so for me, uh, that's how, I guess, I evaluate it.
4: 50 years ago, if you wanted to eat, you had to cook. I mean, we have, you don't have to cook anymore. I think that's got a lot to do with people not cooking. They have a choice. Um, and I, I, the timing thing is hilarious. We, we get a lot of feedback of, oh, you know, we only want 20 minute recipes and 30 minutes is too long. And, and actually when we test people and how long they take, they're quite happy taking 40 minutes. <laughs> They just, you know, they just think they've only got 20 minutes. Um, so I think, you know, quite a lot of it is, is
0: what the consumer thinks, uh, what they actually want to do, and also they've always got that choice. I want to be sure to open it up to the audience for questions because I've spoken with enough of you over the break that I know that there are some questions out there. So. Yes. All right. I'm gonna. Oh man, he's in the back. (laughs) I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw this little box. I might need some help by someone in the middle. Okay. Ready? Here we go. (laughs) All right. Halfway there. (laughs) It (laughs) bounced.
5: Great. Nice device, by the way, <laughs> I've never seen that. So my name is Malter, I'm a freelancer, nutritional scientist and writer. And um, what I want to say is that if you look at Amazon for the top 10 in healthy nutrition books for example, actually you wouldn't find any book about healthy nutrition. <laughs> you only find cooking books. And. That's something I miss in the discussion um, because that's an incentive for many people at home who are currently not cooking but would like to cook maybe. And um, at the same time, many people have to go to out-of-home restaurants. They eat during uh, work time, hours, or something like that. So there I see clearly a B2B business case, like Kishan has said, with healthy recipes, stuff like this. But for the uh, private home market, there's a huge incentive to have a healthy diet. And their recipes might be one of the most important stuff to, to have calculations about energy density, salt, sugar, fat. So that's just more statement, but I think that's missing.
4: It's funny actually. I was I was going to say something about healthy, but I haven't had a chance. One of the things um, that's really tricky with healthy recipes is actually when you look at portion size in a picture, it's incredibly small, um, and it's one of the things that we always have problems with. Um, we have a, a quite a big um, sort of healthy section on the website, and we have a, a program that you can sign up to, and it's incredibly stringent. It's not a diet as such, you choose what you want to eat, but actually it's one of the things that, that it, to publish healthy recipes with visuals as well, it's, it's quite a tough proposition, because what you're showing people on a plate is far less than they want to eat, and I think it 's one of the most interesting conversations that 's going to come up about serving healthy recipes
2: well in, in cooking something that 's healthy and eating healthy are two <laughs> totally different things so uh, I'll tell you, if, if you want your food to taste better at home, like for 99% of you, add more salt, add more butter. Like it's going to taste better. And that's why restaurant food tastes way better than the stuff you cook at home. It's those two ingredients. Now, if if having a little more fat in there means you eat half as much of a serving, that might actually be a pretty reasonable trade-off, even though you put more fat into the particular dish, um, rather than, oh, you know, there was no fat, so I just ate like a whole plate full of carbs because it didn't fill me up in any way and so I think there's there's an interesting tension between cooking healthy and eating healthy and they're not not always cut and dry. Yeah, I think
3: um, from that perspective, the one thing I'd like to add from the health perspective is, is how often we talk about health. And as DJ said, is like ultimately nobody's habits are going to change and, and our ability and willingness to be, want to be healthy and, and be more healthy in reality comes down to the fact that there is this satisfaction that has to happen, whether it be from the size or the actual taste. And so we have to be able to unearth, using food science, ways to drive the same level of satisfaction uh, that comes from that taste from the healthy recipe. And because there's the psychological factor always playing a role in terms of, oh, I know I'm eating something healthy because I'm on a diet or I'm trying to be more healthy. Therefore, there's already a down weightage in my mind about what I'm about to eat. But if I can bring that back up, if we can use science and technology to bring that back up and, and say that, yeah, wow, the satisfaction that came from that, um, then I think more people would be healthy and actually execute on the, you know, instead of all these failed promises that happened in January. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the nutrition element is huge and goes, yeah, you can't even talk about recipes without talking about nutrition. So thank you for your question. It's a great question. Any other questions? Yes.
6: I thought the comment about risk was very interesting and people um, people's approach to risk when taking on recipes. Um, the other thing I was wondering about was a changing pattern of, of home activities and, and, and home makeups. Is it, so first of all, a question, is it true that the the way that people learn, I suppose societally, how to cook has changed? So 50 years ago, you spent longer with your parents, perhaps uh, in those homes learning how to cook because you cooked more, more frequently. And that leads me to a question, since people are not taking the risk because they haven't been guided as much maybe through cooking and learning how to cook and learning what happens when you taste it halfway through and it's a bit too sweet, so you add something to make it less sweet or, or so on. Is it feasible to imagine and I'm also inspired a little bit by what Deb was saying here? There's there's recipes and the way it should work out, and we can talk about making that more and more precise with more and more pictures and more and more details. There's modifications that the community says work if you do it correctly. If you make those exactly those modifications, it'll also turn out nice. But the reality for most people is some are irrespective of which route we're following, it goes wrong halfway through. So my question I'm leading to. Is whether it's feasible to imagine real-time support, real-time online. I'm at step six. It tastes awful. Any way to save this 40 euros worth and 20 minutes worth of investment? Is such a real-time support for recipe correction technically feasible in a cooking environment?
4: <laughs> As someone who has spent Christmas Day on Twitter doing just that, um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of I, I I don't I don't know where the technology is up to that, but yeah, they make me do it sometimes.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's certainly conceivably possible, right? Like, I mean, if you know what you're supposed to be doing, and there's other people that have done it, you could imagine. Here are everyone else's photos from that step that have been where you are. Does it look the same? Does it look different? Like, why would that be? Um, I mean, we certainly haven't done it yet, but it. it Technically, seems feasible. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, why not
3: just take it to the end game and say, well, let the let install a computer vision device and let the them watch you essentially. Let the the system, the machine intelligence, let it understand what you're doing and alert you before you make the mistake, as opposed to when you've already made the mistake and the, the meal's already ruined. Essentially, so I think that's where there's an opportunity. Certainly, from a technology perspective, I'm not sure how many people want to sit there on Twitter on Christmas Day and actually do these kinds of things, but um, only the hardcore foodies. But yeah, I think uh, the opportunity is definitely there Technology is right there right now where you could subject to privacy I guess but like having some sort of device that's monitoring what you're doing and able to assist you in real time. Yeah.
2: I mean I think like it's a really interesting to consider error in two ways. There's what I would call recoverable error in a recipe, and there's unrecoverable error. Okay, uh, If you add too much salt to something, you're generally kind of in trouble. right? Like, I mean, you can start diluting it down, but now you're diluting the flavors instead of just the salt. It's a disaster. Um, and this has actually been a really interesting tension at our company between the chefs that build the recipes and the software engineers. So, Salt is this crazy thing. Uh, if you're a pro chef in the U.S., you use something called diamond crystal kosher salt. Um, it weighs about 45 grams per quarter cup. So if you measure by volume, quarter cup, 45 grams. If you're a home cook, you probably use Morton salt. Well, Morton salt weighs 75 grams per quarter cup because of the difference in grain size. And so, uh, if you, you follow, if you would have, if we would have let the chefs do what they wanted to do and use their diamond crystal measurements, everyone's food would have been oversalted, right? And so, instead, undersalting is a recoverable error, right? You can always add more salt. And so as you're designing recipes, it's really interesting to think about how do you write a recipe in a way that any error that might creep into it becomes a recoverable error instead of an unrecoverable error. And that's how we try to think about things so that that you can sort of fix things down the road if, if stuff gets off track.
0: Yeah, salt to taste is in a lot of recipes, and, and I think that that's why. Also, um, technology can help humans with recipes, but when it comes right down to it, we as the human have to taste as we cook to know, to even know if we want to dial the call in help for this, this doesn't taste great right now. Um, I think we have time for one more question, if there's another question. It's another hand up before. Yeah, go for it.
4: No behind you. Hello, um, I was wondering how um, we can test, that we can um, encourage people to learn the skills that come with experience. So you can follow a recipe slavishly, but because of all the variables, say how your oven works, the temperature of your ingredients that you start with. So it's, um, and so how, how can we teach those skills? Because a recipe can be as precise as you like, but there are, there are loads of variables that come into it. So when my teenage daughter, cooks cupcakes she'll put the timer on and i have a a, an oven that you can't smell when something is burning and she doesn't understand that maybe she needs to check so how do we get those kind of things that just come with experience oh the most important words in a recipe are or until (laughs) it should be in every recipe um, because yeah you're right so it's 40 minutes or until what do you look for that tells you that thing is cooked yeah i, I mean in the same way that you know you, if you if your oven doesn't give off any degree of indication that you're burning things and mine certainly doesn't you know i, I also wish i had a saucepan that would shout hey pay attention every now and then because i have walked away from the caramel for the eighth time
2: I mean, because disagreement is fun. um, Like, I think, I would hope if we go... I'll do this after this session. I would hope that if I go search the phrase for or until in our recipes, it's not there, ideally. Like, it shouldn't be there. Uh, And so, uh, I think... Like, the way you teach people, uh, there, this sort of goes to the question before, it's like, I think people are learning to cook differently now. I think there's like a lost generation, actually, and it's kind of my generation. My mom went to work, my, both my parents worked, right? We didn't you know, cook at home a whole lot, um, and, and so I think a generation of people didn't know how to cook, and now what do you do, right? They have kids, they don't know how to cook. Like, you, it's, the game is lost, right? The thing that we've seen that's crazy is that the number of young kids that are cooking using apps is huge. And I guess it shouldn't have been surprising, right? Like, kids love tablets. Kids love making things. And so if you give a tablet that can help them make a thing, they, like, start doing it. And so I think there's actually a possibility of, like, rekindling some amount of desire and education and zeal for cooking using apps in the younger generation.
0: I think this all goes to show that, yes, the recipe has changed, and it is continuing to change, the evolution continues. Thank you so much to our panelists, JJ and Kishan and Lulu. All right, all my food loving listeners out there who have listened to that whole panel discussion. I hope that you enjoyed it. I had a really great time doing it. And thank you to the Smart Kitchen Summit for inviting me to be a part of that awesome event. As always, thanks to my brother Brian Quinn for the awesome theme song you hear here. I'll see you guys next week. And until then, don't forget to keep it quirky.